Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. This Choircast podcast is brought to you by There Once Were Orange Groves, an upcoming autofiction novel by David Giles. This is a novel about two siblings, Audrey and Jacob, who are both grieving the sudden passing of their father. This bad news arrives soon after Audrey moves out of California and Jacob returns home from college. This book explores how each of them deals with their grief as it colors their day-to-day lives. It's a novel about stories, finding beauty in the little things, and the places those moments inhabit. Available on Amazon on September 19th. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. I'm very happy and excited to be back. I had the luxury and gift of being on sabbatical with my family because my husband was offered one. And it was lovely. And it was a time to renew, to take moments to just reflect, really, and to slow down. And I have to say, one of the things that I really learned from that experience and from being away and being in areas that um, naturally are more, are slower paced, is that I keep asking myself, why do we make ourselves so busy? (laughs) It was just really nice to move slowly and to uh, be more in tuned with my body, to know when I needed to rest, to know when I needed to write, to read, um, and just being present with my kids. We had such lovely times together where we got to just talk um, and laugh and be absolutely silly and ridiculous um, and be able to have hard conversations. And I think sometimes in this American culture, We are told that we have to go, go, go all the time and that in order to be successful, we have to just constantly be doing and proving ourselves. And when we do that, we disconnect from relationships, in my opinion. And one of my favorite experiences was being in a place, um, a retreat center where we couldn't have cell reception. We didn't have cell reception and because it was up in the mountains and we had no Wi-Fi, and we really just had to be and connect and talk with people and we did simple things i learned how to weave on a loom and it was amazing and i spent so much time weaving and it, you know in the mornings i'd get up and stretch and i would read and i'm like how lovely is this <laughs> and i think that by having to do so much and achieve so much and with the cost that everything is now, inflation, it's just a lot. And I think it takes a toll on our bodies and it makes us disconnect for them and from each other. And I think that is what really kind of harms some of our relationships. Today, you know, I am excited because we're going to talk about the body in this podcast and um, learning how to trust it. As a woman growing up in the 80s and 90s, when Victoria's Secret ruled and the popular body image was that of the waif, I had my fair share of body image issues. I was a dancer and I was always thin. 
but I discovered that even thin, it wasn't good enough. I was the size three, but was told I had thunder thighs. People thought it was okay to talk about how my body looked from the size of my breasts to how plump my rear end was. I was told each day that my worth was my body. From my mid-20s on, my relationship with my body grew more turbulent. I spoke of it negatively, and there hasn't been, there wasn't, (laughs) there still is, not a day that goes by where I don't think about food and how I am eating. When I stumbled upon the book, Reclaiming Body Trust, by Hilary Kennevy and Dana Sturdivant, I felt a sense of care and compassion for my body in a way I had not yet experienced. Their words and knowledge were the cradle I needed to change the way I felt about myself in this image-obsessed world that has been built on lies, money, and the need for power. While reading their book, I felt rage for how our culture has shaped how we have lived our lives, as well as freedom for how I now want to live my life. I couldn't be more thankful for their time and effort in their work and this book. Hillary and Dana are the co-founders of the Center for Body Trust. They help people heal from disordered eating, from body shame, and they help them begin to rewrite a new story for their body. Hillary is a therapist and Dana a dietitian, and together they recognized the many stories of how bodies become objects, how they're discriminated against, and how we live with a dysfunctional view of them. Through their research and experience with clients, they are helping many reclaim trust with their bodies. Hillary and Dana, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so much for having, for having us. us. Yeah. yeah. I just, um, you know, I started, I came across your book as I was on my Libby app for on our phones for the library. And I was like, reclaiming body trust. This feels like something I need. <laughs> and I started to read it. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not done yet because I'm the world's slowest reader. I have ADHD and I get distracted. <laughs> and so I jump around to different things. But just even, um, you know, the first three chapters, it was just, I kept telling everyone, I'm like, you need to get this book. You need to get this book. Mm-hmm. Then I also started listening to, it on audio, which was like another, I think it added another layer for me. You know, I enjoyed hearing it as well. So first I just want to say thank you for writing this book because it has really changed the way that I have started to look at myself and my body. Um, mm. And I also attended one of your author events. I just happened to be going to North Carolina and I texted my friend, I'm like, we're doing this, we're going. <laughs> We're there at the same time. And so we went and I just, I loved it. It was just really wonderful. So I'm a fan. I'm just a fan. So as a therapist (laughs) and dietitian, what was the major theme you saw with your clients around how they spoke about their bodies? Yeah. I mean, I think what Dana and I were noticing and kind of joining around when we first started going, working together was how much, you know, we needed a different story about weight and, and um, how to do our work, you know, cause mm-hmm. working from the mainstream dominant weight paradigm was feeling unethical and just kind of not 
right. Like there's just something about it that doesn't feel right, right for Mm -hmm. most of us. Mm -hmm. And so our clients at the time were like, why doesn't weight loss work? Or why am I always regaining weight? Um, Why, you know, I was working with people who had recently had weight loss surgery. It was a long time ago when it was still kind of a newer mainstream conversation. Mm -hmm. And they were like, why don't I feel better? Why don't I love myself now that my body's 50 or a hundred pounds less? Why am I so angry that people are um, reacting so positively to this change? You know, why am I obsessed with the food network? You know, why, Mm -hmm. why is this, why didn't this fix how I feel about myself and my body? And um, I think those core questions were something that my mind and heart really wanted to find the words to answer. I think sometimes we know we have an intuition that this stuff is kind of weird or doesn't fit, Mm -hmm. but finding a new language to talk about um, our bodies in the context of the dominant weight paradigm is really hard. And so Dana and I, as, as um, business partners and colleagues spent a good seven or eight years of our work sitting in circles with people learning and unlearning with them and then developing a language Mm. that could cut a middle path through this idea of like none of this matters I'm gonna ignore my body and I'm in my I'm firmly on the body project side of things I don't know if you have more Dana I think the first thing that came to mind when I heard the question was just like, it was never enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were never good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough, never had enough money and never had enough, enough, enough. Right. And, you know, people would say, well, I, you know, I'd love to weigh what I weighed in high school, or I'd love to weigh what I weighed when I started dieting. And I was like, well, how'd you feel about your body when you started dieting? Oh, well, clearly I didn't think it was good enough. Mm-hmm. And so there was just this, this theme of scarcity, um, yeah. and not enoughness. And it felt like a cat chasing its tail. Like <laughs> it, it was diet culture, weight loss, it's, it was never intended to give us what we're really looking for, what we really need and what we want. Mm-hmm. And so that I think was something I was seeing that I didn't want to contribute to anymore. I didn't want to be another provider, keeping people right. on the hamster wheel, so to speak. I mean, I feel like that, I kind of said that in my introduction, but as someone who grew grew up as a dancer I had always been thin and I grew up in a way where it was like I wasn't given I feel like expectations to succeed in a way that pushed me into a a career to be success successful but I was much more in the gender role of you're a woman you need to like look good and you need to become a mom and get married you know get married become a mom and I remember just how what a body, what a typical American body for a woman to look like, to be beautiful, look like it was critiqued still. Like it was, like I said in the beginning, like my boobs weren't big enough at the time. People would say I had a nice butt, but I had thunder thighs and things. And it was like, my body was something in which a person had the right to critique (laughs) where I was like, why is this happening? 
And then as I got older and became a mom and things and your body changes and it's not all what it, it used to be, right? Our metabolism changes and different things. And I hated that I had such a, a negative self outlook at myself because I would hear, you know, I had a grandmother growing up who was someone who embarrassed me continuously because she would, you know, see someone who's has more weight on their body and she would call them fat and would say it loudly, you know, in such a negative tone. And it was just so heartbreaking to me. And so I would get those like, um, messages like in my ear, like saying this to me. And then there's something too that I want to unpack where with women and stuff being moms, you know, I've had someone recently see me who hadn't seen me in a while. And they said, wow, you're re- you're really mom in it lately. And I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, like we say that And I, you know, and I feel like sometimes I've even said that, like, I look a lot like a mom, but I'm like, I've stepped back and be like, what, why are you, why have you used that? And then why is it that someone sees me, you know, and I've put on a little more weight lately, but who decides like, that's a negative thing, you know, too. And like, and what does that even mean (laughs) to begin with? And why do we say that to each other? And so there's just so many things that I you know, want to deconstruct around that because it's just, Mm -hmm. it is, it's like, it's never good enough. Like nothing we do is good enough. And I just want to throw it against the wall. Right. And then this idea that like femme bodies are somehow public property to comment on. Right. And correctable. Right. It's absurd when Mm -hmm. we really think about it, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, as someone who studies sexuality, I'm just recognizing even more and even based on the culture, even around marriage and women just being property to start off in marriage and things like that. Um, and how we have built these uh, traditions and have given them a sort of sanctity, but to know that they're built out of being controlled in some way mm. has been just kind of like, world altering to be like, really, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I've kind of already had that like little notion that that was to be true, but to look at it now and to be a mom who has children and who has a daughter to be like, how do we stop this? And it seems like we're not because we're repeating history in our society currently. What you have to say about that, but I was just like, what? Well, I keep thinking about how we've been indoctrinated into our own oppression right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that we participate and uphold this in each other is something that we, you know, are so far in that we don't know how to kind of question ourselves out of that or inquire ourselves out of that is kind of coming up for me as I, as I listen to you. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other layer of like, we participate in some of this, perhaps as a form of protection or to maintain a place in the body hierarchy, you know, to, to regain what we've taught. Not sure that that's true, but how, you know, I think to do this differently, we're being called into question, like what, what in these um, coping mechanisms I've developed around, you know, controlling my body, do I actually need and want to have the life I'm actually here to have, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
And those, those are the questions that we're really wanting to surface in people. Um, people can land wherever they will land, but we want to make sure people have access to the question, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes we get used to just living almost um, out of survival. It feels like, right. Of this constant need of belonging and constant need to stand out, but not too much, you know, and to be a part of something that we overlook what feels I think natural to us or what our intuition is telling us. And so it's like a survival technique in my opinion. And so that's why yeah. I think like you're, um, you say like providing them that sense to answer, to ask the question. So many people don't even get to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of this work is helping people locate their problem, the problem outside of their bodies. And, you know, for those of us assigned female at birth, we, by the age of 10, we have learned something's wrong. Yeah. Like we have, seeds have been planted. We've watched Disney films and we see who's the good character and who's the bad character. And it's their subtle and not so subtle messages. And then we have lineages of family that we've named that say disparaging things about certain people's bodies and uphold other bodies and we learn that ladder and how to climb that ladder and it has us all hustling mm-hmm. um for belonging but fitting in is not the same as belonging mm. you know but mm-hmm. people are really hustling in some ways to stay off the radar or to be pedestaled um but mm-hmm. often to stay off the radar. Yeah. Um, so we can stay, we can have some safety. Mm-hmm. I keep um, coming back to this. This is, this is going somewhere, but as a sex educator, right. I was just at a high school football game with my daughter and it's the first high school football game I've been to for years. <laughs> and I just observed, right. And I observed, uh, the teenage boys and the teenage girls and what was happening. And I'm someone who believes people can wear what they want, you know, like they get to express who they are. Um, But I was looking around, I'm like, there seems to be a uniform here, <laughs> even though there's not right. The uniform was a crop top shirt for the girls with the itty bitty shorts. Everyone was wearing them. And I thought to myself, okay, this is fine. You know, they're wearing these things. But then I kept thinking, I'm like, how often do we put or wear certain things or present ourselves in certain ways as like, are we doing this as, as we're saying, like, I feel liberated and this is who I am and I'm doing this, or is it still, I feel like I have to meet some sort of, like, I always think about motivations of why we do things. And so I am still thinking of what's the motivation here that you know, everyone's wearing these things. <laughs> I'm like, is the motivation to fit in? Is the motivation like, I still feel like I have to meet a certain criteria in order to be noticed in a certain way. And so then I thought to myself, are we really liberated? Right. You know, this is so much about the male gaze or the dominant culture gaze around what's deemed appropriate. And it's, I'm sure there's, a very interesting conversation to be had about like the entree into, you know, 
your sexual self mm-hmm. and how you, you know, does this culture introduce that as belonging to um, femmes or belonging to the culture or men or the male gaze or whatever, you know, I think that's yeah. a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. But, I, I, you know, as you're talking about that, I'm also thinking about how those are the two, like my son's entering high school this year, and I was reading the dress code. Mm-hmm. And those are the two things targeted pretty much other than like baseball caps. Oh, yeah. It's no more- midriff, no short shorts. Yeah. Yeah. It's all for it's still all for the for the girls attire. Same here for yep. my kids high school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then that's what they want to wear. Yeah. And often what is like, so even... who's defining what's liberatory. Right. Yeah. The schools. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. And then what you find in stores too, like, it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's hard. So then what is the biggest myth that we have taken as truth in the American culture related to body image? I think that the body's correctable. Um, I think they've done a really good job of equating thinness and health, which is not an accurate equation. Right. And so we've taken that as truth and taken that on as a personal responsibility and um, an expectation that everyone else is on board and should be. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we, we believe that we um, need to be in control of our bodies, can be in control of our bodies um, that we can prevent most disease, not probably true. Um, you know, those are the ones immediately coming to mind for me, Dana, do you have any others? And the other thing is like, you know, there's sometimes there's an over-focus on body image when what we need to be talking about is body oppression and weight Mm -hmm. stigma and and anti-fat bias and the othering, um, and the systemic issues that, you know, there's a reason why people struggle with their body <laughs> when they live in this culture. And then we expect them to, you know, to recover from their eating disorders and go out to the wolves right. when nothing in the culture is changing. And, you know, certain people in our field want to say it's, you know, thinking errors. And it's like, no, the world is super messed up about bodies. Yeah. And if we just talk about, we just call it body image. It's so individual focused. Mm when we need to really be thinking about systemically, why, why are we all struggling? We are all struggling. This is a normative discontent. Now we're seeing it in boys now because they're seen as an untapped market in the dieting industry with the advent of social media, more uh, people, more women and people assigned female at birth are divesting from diet culture and dieting and disordered eating and so they're seeing men as this untapped market and now it's about fitness and Hillary has two boys who are obsessed about protein powders and protein drinks and Mm -hmm. you know they grew up in a house with none of this shit Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like talking about foods and you know hierarchies Mm -hmm. and stuff but you know they're they're a product in the culture and so if we're not talking about our socialization and the ways that we are really indoctrinated into thinking about bodies in really rigid mechanistic ways, like I think we're doing a disservice. So I think a lot of conversations about body image are way too superficial and we're not talking about what really is impacting people's lived experience in their bodies. So how is that that 
when we have these, you know, billion dollar industries around diet culture and healthy eating and um, YouTube channels where you can get follow me to get the six pack abs and things like this. Like, how do we divest from, from that as a system to help change things? What are some things that you guys have individually thought about? And because, you know, I mean, I see my kids already being affected by it too. Like my son is 10 and he has been, um, you know, I, I have decided, (laughs) I told him I, he started talking a lot about um, abs and different things and seeing, and a lot of it is just seeing it on TV shows, like always having, having a lot of the attractive men with their te- with their shirts off and this is how men look and things like this that he has noticed, but also s- just seeing certain things come up on YouTube. And so I've said, I'm like, I think we're going to be monitoring more what you're watching <laughs> on YouTube and different things like this. Um, I've been having lots of conversations about it, but I do see it's really kind of breaking into those industries too and helping people change their mindset around that. So what are some of the things you have thought about for that? I I think um, it's so interesting how we go to these places looking for answers, um, you know, to this problem of having a human body and Uh, and the differences between human bodies. Um, And so I think part of divestment is understanding that those are industries, you know, that people are um, profiting off of your maybe increasing body shame or your increasing body dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. And that that's a you know, that's, that's by design. And so I think there's more, you know, people need more critical um, a more critical analysis of what's determined as truth. Like we'll take dietary advice from anybody. Yeah. And as Dana often says, it's not like you take your car to a new dietitian. You know what I mean? <laughs> you wouldn't, you want to, you know, but we'll like believe anybody's anything yeah. about how they, you know, gain strength or um, lost weight or whatever. And I, I'm just, it's wild to me how uncritical we are of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been sold so distinctly that there is a magical answer. If we just try hard enough and what we're not tracking is how each time we try is impacting us psychologically and emotionally and physically. Right. Because it has having an impact. And I hate that whole aspect of when people just automatically think a person is lazy, you know, like, well, that didn't work for you. You must be lazy, Mm -hmm. you know, which is just like, well, there's, let's talk, you know, when I teach kids about reproduction, I call it soup. I talk about how we're all soup because we have different ingredients, similar ingredients, but different amounts. (laughs) We have different amounts of hormones. We have different amount, um, you know, we have certain DNA and we talk about that and I'm just like, if we can just realize we're all soup, <laughs> you know, like these are the bodies we were given. We have a relationship with them. They're also going to do what they want to do. And, <laughs> you know, like having more discussions around that, because I think people just so quickly determine a person's value or like you're lazy or, oh, look how determined you are. Even 
in thinness, there can be uh, like disordered thinking and eating and things like that. Right. And I think sometimes people don't always recognize that. And I think with this onset of the BMI has changed how people see things. And through your book and other uh, podcasts that I've heard, just talking about the BMI and how that was just kind of nonsense that we have all taken as truth. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I find myself thinking about the trainings we've been doing with health education teachers and that are six teach sixth through 12th grade and how much of their own divestment they need to do because, mm. you know, our socialization into these really rigid and mechanistic ways of thinking about the body and inhabiting the body um, start really young. And so by the time, and we just take them as facts and they get reinforced in church and schools and mm. by our school teachers and our medical doctors. So by the time we get to college, we don't even think to question what we've been taught to believe about weight and health. Yeah. And and our health education teachers are often spouting off more personal food philosophy and their mm. own indoctrination. Mm -hmm. You know, often at the at the you know at the urging of the school districts to do something about it. And you know, we're just all upholding a bunch of stinky stuff that, mm -hmm. because we don't know. So part of the way we do this work is to personally divest and and do our own anti-oppression work so we can see it threaded through everything right right that's one thing i'm thinking about is you know a lot of these health teachers what they're teaching and i'm going to put it in air quotes it's not health it's mm -hmm. rhetoric mm -hmm. and um you know and so that's where kids are learning Mm -hmm. to be obsessed and learning the hustle and learning about the body mass index and and the body mass index is um you know based by based on a mathematician's uh formula that he created in the 19th century to look at the distribution of weight across a population of people mm -hmm. uh, and, a, and a population of white people and, right. and let me just back that up a little bit more and say in a population of white men, because the formula we use is for men. They originally had one for women, too. They've never had one for children. Um, but then they just use the one for white men to pathologize everybody's body. Yeah. And this this mathematician had roots in eugenics. So in, in how do we control the population through reproduction? Mm -hmm. um, and it's. In, if we really dial it back, we can see its roots in white supremacy and white body supremacy. Mm -hmm. When you look at the roots of my field of dietetics, we have roots in home economics, which was has roots in uh, domestic science and whiteness and wanting to set apart white households from other households. Yeah, And if we don't know about this, we don't know that we are just upholding white dominant culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and then there are parents who will say we are radicalizing our children. And I want to say, yeah, we are radicalizing them. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I feel like we need to radicalize. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we are easier to control when we are fragmented. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we, uh, this is something our teacher and trainer and mentor, Desiree Attaway, had said to us that we are easier to control when parts of ourselves are fragmented. And that's why we write about embodiment in the book. Mm-hmm. And how do we come home? And what does entering the wilderness look like um, when, you know, we have been prescribed a set of rules for inhabiting and occupying a body? Mm-hmm. Instead of really being aware of what we like and what do we want, right? Because like you were talking about clothing, clothing becomes this way of, you know, signaling our desirability instead of like focusing on my desires. Like, do I like the way this outfit makes me feel? Or is it about like getting looks and getting attention, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's, there's an embodied sexuality and then there's a sexuality that's all about the male gaze right um and in that age of puberty we're so ripe to become way more interested in other people's desires Mm -hmm. than we are about our own desires yeah i had two what i thought freeing experiences for myself was one when i um did um I got a boudoir photography done for myself and it was like um you know everyone's like oh did you, are you doing this for your husband I'm like no I'm doing it for me and it was like a moment where for the first time I felt in my body and felt sexual in a way where it was just for me where nobody was trying to comment on it or tell me anything and I had the pictures for myself, you know, I don't Mm. share them with others. It's just for me. And then, you know, I went to Greece this summer and a friend of mine said to me, she goes, "Uh, Carrie, you should, you should get a bikini. And I was like, uh, you know, I'm still in the process clearly of, um, deconstructing, right? Like I've had body issues. And so, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to have that bikini body. And she goes, no, Kara. She's like, get a bikini. Europeans don't care. <laughs> you know, she's like, Americans were, were kind of jerks about that, but just do it. And so I was at the pool um, in Greece and I just, this was before I put on the bikini and I just looked around and there was every single type of body imaginable at that pool. Everyone was wearing whatever they wanted to wear or not wear. And I was like, just watching and like, people didn't care. Like people were just living in their skin, living in their bodies, swimming, feeling the water, feeling the sun. And I literally was like, is this what heaven is? Like, is this <laughs> like this is beautiful. Like, this is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love this. And So I went and I put on my bikini Mm -hmm. and I came out and my daughter saw me and she cheered and applauded me, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's like, yay, mom. And I know like the place where I hold shame is because I know I've talked about my body too much and I know I've done so negatively. And my daughter has heard this and my son has heard this and I'm like, no why are you doing this? You know, like every time I hear stuff come out of my mouth, I'm like, no, (laughs) take it back, you know, because Mm -hmm. I don't want them to hear that from me. And they think I'm beautiful. And actually my son has changed the way I feel too about my body. Like he 
loves my tummy. And he's like, mom, that's where we came from. That's our home. It's a trophy. And he's like, (laughs) (laughs) and he gave it a name and like, it's there, it's where they go to get comfort. Like they will lay their heads on it. And I'm like, that's so beautiful. And so as someone who has already know that I have inevitably passed down this messaging that I prayed I wouldn't have, but I know I did and feel awful about how can I start to change that and help them see that system like that we live in. You know, I try to re-listen to Jack's um, song about Victoria's Secret, right? I don't know if you've heard Uh that song. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that. And I, you know, have said, I'm like, you guys, this is why I have struggled because I got that messaging And I'm sorry if I say it in front of you and I'm trying to learn, but it's really, really hard. So do you have any advice around that? I mean, I think one thing that we can do as parents that many of us didn't get is say I was wrong. Mm. Like how nice would have that been to her? I mean, in my, in my household, I would have loved to hear that more often and, um, you know, I think anything that we're doing around this to make the questions bigger than the answers and, you know, create some like liminal space or some like gray space Mm -hmm. that isn't polarized, um, is changing things. Mm -hmm. And I think it is quite a journey for families who have dieted together or, you know, has, have been introduced to restricted eating to, you know, both have mom or a parent, um, doing their own healing work and then changing and the family's habits, you know, access to food, things like that are changing with it. And I do think like having someone to talk to about that can be really helpful, Mm -hmm. but to think that we can't make this mistake in front of our kids isn't accurate. It's just like, are we going to acknowledge it and talk about it? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what I've learned from watching my kids is like, you know, like Dana said, they didn't grow up around this stuff, but it's like, so in the house, you know, like thinking that we can somehow keep it out by not talking about it is probably inaccurate. So what conversations are we having about it? And if they land in like more questions than answers, that might be great in some ways because Mm -hmm. kids are really drawn towards, you know, this is the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. instead of keeping it kind of wide right. and uncertain, which is where we are with this right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, I say all the time to parents when I talk about sexuality, like to just be the parent that they can go to to ask the questions, not, and you don't always have to have the answer, yeah. but to mm-hmm. keep the door open and to apologize. And so I feel like maybe that's similar. That's what I'm hearing you say, like yeah. with this, you're like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, whoops, I did it again. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also think parents can set up a dichotomy, like, well, my body's a problem, but yours isn't, you know? And I don't think that's it right. either. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's just like, I'm healing. I'm recovering. This is when I say that, please tell me I'm making a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I'm not a, please parent, tell me so. how that impacts you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, since I'm not a parent, I thought I would let Hillary answer, go first in this. And as I was listening, 
you know, one of the things we talk about in our work is just, you know, that we all have bad body days, Mm -hmm. you know, and what we do on those days can make a big difference in whether we, you know, go down the rabbit hole or we (laughs) stay rooted in the truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your kids are going to have bad body days in this culture. And so I almost wonder Mm -hmm. about just naming like, oh, I'm having a bad body moment. It's not it's not that my body's bad. It's that I'm having a Mm -hmm. moment where I feel bad in my body. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I want to say disparaging things about it. And that's not the way I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to change the way I do that. But I know that this is just a bad body day. It's not that my body's bad. Yeah, I just I'm having a bad body moment. Yeah, I like that. And then I think providing ways to recover from that, right? Like providing a coping skill. <laughs> like I just immediately thought like, I I actually created um for days where I'm having either a bad body day or just a bad emotional state day <laughs> where you're just feeling kind of glum. I created a playlist of music that always brings me you know, joy or like positive messages within the music. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. it's time to put that on and dance it out a little bit. <laughs> because you mm-hmm. know, like dancing always brings a sense of endorphins and joy and dopamine. <laughs> so maybe that's something to adopt to like, well, let's dance that out. Let's figure yeah, we, out how to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> we have a bad body day toolkit. And uh, one of the things that's part of the toolkit is a playlist. Oh, that's great. Crowdsourced from our community what are the songs you put on like what are some good you know good songs to play or listen to when you're having a bad body day or good songs Mm -hmm. to listen to just to you know change the narrative help you change the narrative shake shit up Mm -hmm. um and so yeah and that like victoria's secret song is on there of course oh yeah a lot of other ones but mm -hmm. i love that um, so now that we're kind of talking about some of the things that you guys do, what is the first step you teach in rewriting the story of our bodies to reclaim that body trust? I mean, I think that I think about like that body trust is a birthright. You know, we like to mm-hmm. say that body trust is a birthright, that you were born into this world with it. And um, we don't come into the world fretting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Learned. And so that phrase alone is pretty powerful for people to think like, oh, this was mine and it was taken from me. Like I lost it. Like trust was broken somehow. Um, And like understanding how you lost trust with your body is a big part of the reclamation. Mm-hmm. because through that exploration of of okay where where were the seeds first planted and then what happened and then what happened and where was it reinforced and um that really helps us start to see like shift the blame outside of ourselves where we're so used to being so inner focused and what's wrong with me and why can't I pull this off and even you know why can't I do this body trust thing right <laughs> right right (laughs) and instead of like seeing that this complicated that you know we tell people within 30 minutes of you turning this podcast off you're going to receive at least one or two messages that says what we were talking about here is harmful dangerous and wrong right this Mm. is not what the culture talks about Mm. um but to understand that this was a birthright that it's 
it's something that was lost that you once had. Sometimes it's been robbed so young that you don't even remember having it. Right. Um, but that it's something that we can get back. And mm-hmm. That's often where we start. I don't know what Hillary would say. I think that's it. And then I think a lot of people come to this work being like, <clears throat> feeling a little reticent about it, but also knowing they don't want to go back to the pain and struggle of, you know, body hate and dieting and disordered eating. And so sometimes we just start by sitting in the discomfort of being like, I don't know how I feel about this new path, but I definitely know I can't go, you know, go backwards. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think the body story itself is a way that we start to look for ways that we have internalized ideas about ourselves that actually are tools uh, from the industry. Yeah. You know, like the should have worked and it didn't, or I'm a failure because this right. doesn't work for me, even though it doesn't work for 95% of people, mm-hmm. you know, and I think those places are just kind of build a foundation of deconstructing the story. We also mm-hmm. really encourage people to kind of sit with a question of like, how did you learn your body is a problem? Mm-hmm. You know, when did that happen for you? Yeah. Or how did you learn fat was bad? Where, when did that happen for you? Right. And I think that those questions can be really good catalysts for starting to rewrite mm-hmm. how this became your project or your problem. Mm-hmm. I think two things too also came to mind while you were talking. One is, I think there's also this, as we always do have a pendulum that goes this way and then the pendulum that goes that way. So I feel like, I feel like I want to name that people, you know, whose society calls fat or who's fat, you know, where did you hear that was bad and how is your body bad? But I also think people who are just very naturally thin and have a hard time putting on weight also receive that, you know, that whole thing of, Um, you know, I had a friend who people kept saying to them, like, why aren't you eating enough? And you're not eating enough. And they're like, I, I, I eat actually, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like things like that. But also, um, I was thinking about the phrase, like something that I, I started doing was when I have bad body days or whatever, of, of learning how to just care for myself and know that this stuff has been constructs and I've been working with that. But I realized like one of the things I do is I'm like, well, love her anyway. Like I've been saying to me, like, well, love her anyway, like to myself. And then I was like, huh, as you guys were talking, I'm like, we should take away anyway. Cause I feel like saying the comment, love her anyway, Mm -hmm. is still saying I'm less than, or this is less than. And so it should really just be love her of yeah. you love her despite <laughs> yeah right yeah, I was oh, wait, like no. I just never put that together until just hearing the two of you speaking about this and I was like oh my gosh like we're automatically mm-hmm. even in some of those things social media and different things of people saying oh love her anyway I'm like but that's still right. giving this connotation that she's not good enough yep so true well and part of what body is not go ahead not Hillary. an apology go ahead I was thinking of Sony Renee Taylor and oh, the yeah. body is not an apology, which is anyone hasn't read that. I would highly recommend yeah. reading that yeah. too. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sonia is always talking about like how do we stretch the edges of our body positivity? Mm-hmm. You 
to to include ourselves mm. and the bodies that we have a hard time including right because this isn't about acceptance up to a certain number on the scale or size of genes right mm-hmm. um and sometimes you know part of our work is is acknowledging that while deep weight stigma has impacted all of us deeply mm-hmm. and has it has all of us hustling we have not all been impacted the same. Right. Like I still hold an enormous amount of body privilege in this world. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and yes, thin people have been harmed and people don't trust thin people's bodies, right? Like we know right. when parents have an agenda for their kids and don't trust their kids' bodies to grow up to be the size and shape that's right for them. Mm-hmm. We introduce static into the feeding relationship mm-hmm. and there is not a systemic piece to the the oppression right like fat people don't get hired they can't fit they don't have airplane accommodations they go into restaurants and they don't know if a seat's gonna fit them they get they can't go grocery shopping without people saying shit to them about what's in their grocery store right and so it's really I think important for us to acknowledge that while we've all been deeply impacted by the society and how pervasive anti-fat bias is um that it we're not all having the same experience that's true yeah thank you um and i like also i mean acknowledging and that you talked about so much of the systemic issue is also the race issue and the white supremacy and i think about and this is a completely different podcast but that is also part of the reproductive justice story as well as built out of Mm -hmm. racism and so it just feels like so much of this stuff as I continuously learn is about power. Like the, mm-hmm. how can we control people and how do we have power over them? Mm-hmm. Is what I like the theme that I keep seeing over and over and over again, as you look yep. at how our systems have been built, especially in this country. Yeah. How do we build our, our profits, our businesses, our power on the backs of others? Mm-hmm. So after you do some of your workshops, what are some of the, um, what are your, pers- what do your participants say after they've walked away from one of your workshops? I um, think they're relieved to hear truth. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're thinking the same thing, Dana. Um, yeah. Um, I think, you know, they're inspired to have more compassion for their own process and journey and the choices they've made. One thing we say all the time is how much we believe that all of our coping, you know, with through disordered eating, through dieting, all that stuff, um, disembodiment have are rooted in wisdom, right? Like these are survival skills in a culture that is um so hierarchical and weight-based. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that reframing, that getting the problem focus out of their bodies, like Dana said earlier, is really opens up a lot of space to reconsider how they've related to themselves and told the story of their body. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I think, what we hope people will walk away from. And also access to these questions, like I said in the beginning, access to the question of like, if this wasn't my fault. If the story of shame and failure about my bodies wasn't my story, what would be possible? 
in my mm-hmm. life because so many people we've worked with have you know spent 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years you know we've had clients in their 80s um with this obsession with bodies and food and so many uh regret the time and energy that it took from their lives oh yeah other people and you know um dieting does distract us from everything else that we could be doing. I think that's our lives on hold and all of that. I think that's the biggest thing that I have felt like is like, in terms of this aspect of control, it's like, what else could we have been doing with our lives or have created? If we, if we recognize that who we are alone is good enough, instead of trying to always fix ourselves, diet, exercise, do all these things. That to me alone is saying, is that aspect of control because it's putting us in a position where, you know, we don't have that power over ourselves. And I'm like, there's so much creativity. I feel like that's been lost. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much that's been lost. I don't think we would have had the orange man in office if, if people weren't distracted by the hustle, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't think 53% of white women would have voted for him mm. if we weren't busy, worried about the size of our assets. Lindy West and her book Shrill, which the which the oh. the show, TV show was based on. And yeah, that was a great show. The Fat Babe Pool Party has changed lots of people's lives. And I was mm. thinking about the Fat Babe Pool Party when you were talking about the Greek pool experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, something Lindy wrote about in that book is how it it moves the rudder of the world is the quote she says when we are pitted against one another and we are distracted by this hustle it moves the rudder of the world Mm. that we would not live in this world as it is today if we weren't all distracted by this right that it's a potent political sedative as Naomi Wolf said and Mm. I know she's Mm-hmm. There's some problematic shit that's come out about her lately. And that's a powerful quote to call it a dieting as a, po- a political sedative. Yeah. You know? Well, um, and and I think it also continues to put women against each other. Yeah. Where we know that, you know, like there's, for instance, this uh, social media group I'm a part of, that's a local mom's group. And I joke with my husband all the time and I'm like, you know, we would get everything done in this world. <laughs> like through, like you have a question, you go to that group, they answer it. They tell you what to do. You do like, people are like, this is what I've done, blah, 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 blah. You know? And I was like, if we're not like competing against each other and if we're not comparing ourselves, like think about the magic that would be happening when we like learn how to love one another, accept one another, mm-hmm. build each other up encourage each other yep you know and that's a big part of um you know this question you asked like what do people walk walk away with from our programs is like community is everything in this work yeah that we need people who support our liberation we need community at least one other person who will at a minimum hold space for us to listen Mm -hmm. while we're sorting this out and not gaslight us on our journey 
Right. Um, but when people come and do this explore body trust and their body stories and, and community, um, they often shift leaps and bounds because you can feel like a weirdo out there when everyone else is going with the grain uh, and you're trying to disrupt the status quo when people look at you like you're in a cult, mm. um, that you're drinking the Kool-Aid and they mm -hmm. don't know where you got the Kool-Aid, but you better throw the Kool-Aid out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to see that there are other people struggling, that there are other people wanting change, that are there are other people that believe in this work can can and being a member in an equitable community yeah. is a huge part of coming home yeah and so i think that's a big piece of what people learn in our programs be, as well as like it's not your fault and you're not broken yeah right <laughs> i love that before we end today i ask all of my guests the one this one question what story are you reframing in your life today? I think for me, it's about aging and perimenopause. Like <laughs> I'm kind of blown away. I think Dana and I are kind of sharing in this journey in, in a way, but I'm kind of blown away by how little information there is about perimenopause and what, I mean, at least my experience, a long mind fuck it is. Like yes. it's just an ever changing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember, you know, my early forties, I'm 47 now, almost 48, um, you know, going in and my doctor saying, I think these are symptoms of perimenopause. And I was like 42, 43. And she's like, it takes 10 years though. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like, this is going to go on for 10 years. And no one told me I mean, you know, you hear things, but what, there's no container for mm -hmm. this. You know what I mean? And, and depending on what doctor you have, mine's very focused on women's health and hormones. If you don't have one of those, I don't know what's happening. So for me, the rewriting the story of like aging and shifting capacity and changing cognitive, uh, you know, changing cognitions and changing and evolving anxieties and like all these things is just so central to my every day now that it's yeah. something I'm confronting all the time. Yeah. And if I can say it can be 10 years for some women or one year, it can be one to 10 years. Oh, so it just depends so and it can start yeah. as early as age 38 for some women. Wow. Yeah. It's such, <laughs> I mean, we just need so much more information. I think there's better books and stuff coming out. <clears throat> yeah, there is. It's yeah. just not, it's, You'd think there'd be way more to say. So, yeah. Yeah. I have a workshop coming up on it, actually. <laughs> yes. Oh, awesome. I really I'd love do. to hear more. Yeah. Because, you know, that's what I've been recognizing. I've been doing more workshops on perimenopause that I've been learning about because actually moms hire me to teach their kids. And then they're like, actually, Kara, can you do a workshop for us on perimenopause and menopause? And so we create space to talk about it because you know, your symptoms are not going to be the same as your friends and it looks yeah. different, but what's similar yeah. is the fact that we're not given them enough information. It is the least studied topic medically and it like continues to change and hormone therapy is great for some people and it's not great for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so learning how to navigate that. Yeah. It's a lot. For yeah, sure. It's a lot. Mm-hmm.
How about you, Dan? Just like to offer the the listeners that the reframing of the weight gain during perimenopause that it is life-saving and life enhancing and it's net medically necessary weight gain mm-hmm. as we exit reproductive life our bodies need weight gain mm-hmm. so let's not frame it as a problem right the spare tire when it's really a life preserver our friend marco main says so i just wanted to offer that reframe since we're talking about reframing <laughs> okay and since Hillary stole my answer, <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I remember when I saw this on the list, I was like, "Wow, that's a really big question." The great question. <laughs> How am I gonna? What am I gonna say? I don't know. You're like, um, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> but I think I'm. I mean, I I don't think I know that I'm reframing my relationship to rest. Mm. what it means to rest mm-hmm. um, my relationship with doing yeah my relationship with lists um and just really reframing the need for rest and that I don't need a reason for it mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. I'm just allowed to rest and yes. I have, to have everything off the list to rest there'll always be more to do yep and that's what I'm reframing I feel like I learned about that this summer with the sabbatical my husband was on. So we got to relax and Mm -hmm. I was like, why in the world do we try to do so much all the time? Mm -hmm. And the way that, you know, you can, you can hear your body better. You can have a better relationship. I think with your body, when you're able to do that resting, Yeah, you're more in tune. That's what I found this summer for myself too. was like, oh, I'm in tune with myself because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not doing constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. And how can people find you? I know some of them will be like, I want to go to this workshop. <laughs> like, can you t- briefly speak about the workshops that you do that people could come to? Yeah. To learn more. Yeah. You can find out more about us at centerforbodytrust.com. Um. And we're on Instagram and Facebook primarily these days, thinking about the TikTok, um, mm-hmm. but haven't quite jumped yet. <laughs> um, but um, today I was like, I'm gonna need to be on that TikTok. Um, <laughs> so we have our our tried and true six week beloved e course called No More Waiting with the body weight waiting, no more waiting. We run that every couple of months. So that's a great way to get, um, dip your toes into this work and explore body trust work. Um, we have a free uh, workbook. You can, if you want to sign up for our mailing list, we'll send you a workbook. You can explore body trust that way for free. Then we have um, a body story retreat. It's online uh, where we, we send, we meet, for two hours, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, live on Zoom. And then we send you other retreat materials to support your experience over the weekend. And you get to share your body story in small groups if you want. So that's coming up this October. And depending on when people are listening, we will offer that somewhat regularly. And then we also have a certification program for providers who want to Um, bring this work into their professional life and advocate for it in their work 
and that is a year-long program that um, includes 14 online learning modules and we offer that once a year right now oh I might have to look into that <laughs> for yeah, sure I'd love to have you <laughs> yeah. oh, thanks so much I appreciate it yeah thanks for having us thank you thank you so much it was really a pleasure